Hey, look at your neighbor and tell him, be jolly. That's kind of a weird statement, isn't it? I asked you to do that because it sounds funny to command somebody to be happy. Like, you will enjoy, you, you, we're going to have fun. And that just kind of feels strange, doesn't it? Well, to get at this this morning as we start this series, Tis the Season, I want to ask you to go back in time with me. Many of you, before you were even born. In 1981, a war was raging for the soul of America. Now, I'm not talking about the rise of the religious right and their opponents or anything like that. I'm talking about a battle royale, a, a struggle that pitted the partiers against the professionals. The partiers against the professionals. Now, representing the partiers was an R&B disco funk group known as Cool and the Gang. Now, I don't care who you are right now. That is a cool gang. How many of you all remember Cool and the Gang on the radio? Oh, you know it. Man, Cool and I mean, they, they had it going on. And it was in February of 1981, February the 7th to be exact, that Cool and the Gang's party anthem celebration scaled the heights of the Billboard Hot 100 and stayed there for a solid two weeks. Now, you may think, well, two weeks, that's no big deal. But understand, in pop music, pop culture terms, two weeks is dog years. I mean, that's a long time to have the number one hit in the country. But two weeks later, Cool and the Gang and their hit celebration were unceremonially dumped by none other than the one and only Dolly Parton and her hit song, Nine to Five. Now, Nine to Five, of course, was not only a hit song for Dolly, it was the title song of a movie by the same name. And in this movie, Dolly and Jane Fonda and Lily Tomlin portrayed the plight of working women everywhere trying to just make their way in the male-dominated marketplace. And so you had this, this battle between the partiers and the professionals. And to be sure, I, I don't really believe that Cool and the Gang and Dolly Parton actually had a philosophical beef with each other. But their billboard battle, no matter how inadvertent it might have been, I think actually perfectly represents a struggle that every single one of us feels in our own lives. It's a struggle that we feel day to day, but in this season of holidays, it's a struggle that I think comes into particularly sharp focus. I think I've noticed in my own life, but also with people that I know and conversations that I have, broadly speaking, we struggle with the integration of celebration on one hand and dedication on the other hand. These are two parts of our lives that we kind of know both are necessary, but we really do everything we can to keep them separate. There's kind of like the celebration bucket in our lives, and we keep that over here, and we keep that reserved for the fun stuff and having a good time and just kind of cutting loose and, and those kind of things. But over here, we know that we need some dedication and some seriousness and some work ethic, and we have to actually, from time to time, be 
productive, but we really do everything we can to keep those two things separated and bifurcated in our lives so that they never, because man, if they ever got, you know, co-mingled or ever like touched each other, something could blow up or bad things, bad things could happen, man. And we, we wrestle, we, we struggle with this integration, particularly as the holidays approach. Now, we, we want to enjoy the holidays. There, there's a part of us that, I mean, just the word holiday, it's kind of like, man, it sounds like fun. It's, it's, a, it's a holiday after all. And there's, the weather's changing and maybe get some time off from work or from school. And, you know, family's coming and we really want to enjoy them, but not always. And so a lot of times we start to get kind of stressed out. The holidays have a unique unique brand of stress in our lives. I think about students. Students are thinking, man, the holidays are coming, but before I can get there, there there's end of semester projects and, and final exams to, to get through and, and to figure out. And in the marketplace, a lot of people are wrapping up their fiscal year. And so, boy, the numbers, you better hit the numbers. You got a quota. Remember, it's got to be hit. And so there's that work stress that gets brought into the equation. And then the holidays have a stress all their own. I mean, just the gift list alone. How do we choose who to give what? And, and do we give the right gift? And heaven to help us if somebody gives us a gift, but they're not on our list and we have to go find something for them and make it look like they were on our list anyway. Awkward. It's really, really tough. And it's against this backdrop that today you and I start this series as a church, Tis the Season. And today, I believe God wants to do not just a new thing, I believe a great thing in our lives. A great thing where the holidays and this season of the year is not just a cause to survive, not just something to live through, but to actually leverage, not just to endure, but to actually enjoy, to see a supernatural integration of celebration and dedication to bring together the joy of this season that is supposed to be there, that is inherent in that, along with our faith, our family, our focus, our work, our vocation, our education. And the only way this happens is by a supernatural move of God. You and I, in and of ourselves, no matter how gifted and talented we are or how many 4.0s we racked up academically, we can't pull this off on our own. Fortunately for us, the Bible is jam-packed with examples of God not only calling us to this integration of celebration and dedication, but also showing us how to make it a reality. How do, we, how do we live this out, not just during the holidays, but to use the holidays as a springboard into the rest of the calendar, into the rest of the year? Now, when you think about the Christian life, there are a lot of different pictures painted in the Bible about what it looks like, how, how we live that out, and specifically who God is and how he operates in our lives. There, there, God uses the, the example throughout the Bible of his love for us being that of a perfect father, one who perfectly and unconditionally loves us, his children. There, there's the example that Jesus is our, our shepherd, the one who 
provides for us, the one who protects us and guards us, the one who leads us, guides us, and directs us. But there's another image that I think a lot of times gets lost in the mix for some reason. Throughout the Bible, God is portrayed as the host of a great feast. He's portrayed as the one who has prepared a spectacular table and feast and invited us to participate in the feast with him. Now, I don't think I'm jumping out too far on a limb, no matter where you are spiritually today, no matter where you come from or what your presuppositions about God may be, the idea of a feast is one that appeals to all of us. I think we would all say, man, I I would love to attend a feast. If I didn't have to prepare the meal and certainly don't have to clean it up, that's why I go out to eat. But to understand that that's one of the recurring themes of the entire Bible. Let me ask you a question today. How many of you, really and truly, this is in church and it's confidential, your answer will never leave these walls. How many of you love food? Can I just see a show? If you, I mean, you're, if, you, if you just eat it as a utilitarian kind of thing, that's fine. But if you, I mean, you're like me and, and Julie, Julie and me, we, we, be honest with you, we love us some food, man. We do. I, I, as a matter of fact, I need to apologize to you. I, I began noticing over the last two or three months, a lot of the illustrations that I was using in my sermons were food-centric. And I, and I know that I was kind of like, man, I, I need to kind of get away from that. And I'm not doing that. I'm talking about what the Bible says today. This isn't an illustration. But I began noticing that, and I, and I realized that a lot of my illustrations were about food when Julie and I were on that crazy Whole30 eating program. I think you start to think about the things that you really miss in life, and it was kind of seeping into my sermons. You know what I'm saying? Well, the fact of the matter is, God has prepared an elaborate feast of life. The gospel is the feast which God has created for us. He's prepared for us and invites us into. And when you realize that the King of kings and the Lord of lords has prepared a table for us, you start to understand, I think, a a little bit more about who God is and how he operates, and specifically, how he feels about us. Because I'm going to be honest with you, I'm a little selective about the people that I prepare food for. I I, I don't just like, you know, just walk into a mall and go, hey, you want to come over to my house and we're going to make steaks tomorrow night? Come on, I'd love to have you. I I don't do that. If we're going to prepare a meal for somebody, we've thought about them. We've kind of said... We want to spend time around the table with them. Do they have any peanut allergies? Okay, cross them off the list. Who else could we? No, I'm teasing. Do do they have any? Is there any dietary needs that they have that we need to be aware of? And this idea of the feast is something that is consistent in the character and the nature of God, not only in the New Testament. Jesus used this illustration multiple times. In in the book of Revelation, the Bible promises that those who walk in a relationship with Christ, those who have stepped over that line of faith, of dedication to Christ, 
are invited to the greatest celebration the world will ever know, the wedding feast of the Lamb, the Bible calls it. Eternity lived in perfect relationship, open communion with God forever, eternally. But it also goes back to the Old Testament, all the way back to when God was giving the law to Moses. And that's how most of us think about the law, the Ten Commandments and the law, you know, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We're like, man, I, if I'm going to read through the Bible, can I just start with like Matthew? I just, I like grace. I like forgiveness. Tell me some stories. But I want you to notice something. Whatever you believe about God, whatever your presuppositions are, there's one place you need to begin. Your presuppositions about God have to begin with the fact that God is love. He is love. So that means that everything he does is rooted in that fact. Now you and I, we can love. It's possible. But God is love. He is the author of love. He is the one who created. So he's, by definition, relational. And so even when he was giving the law to Moses for Israel to understand how they were to exist and to live in covenant relationship with the God who had chosen them, even the law was an expression of love. Now, it was to be a foreshadowing of the perfect expression of that love found in Jesus Christ. Jesus said he was the fulfillment of the law. The law was a, was a foreshadowing. It was just a, a hint of that which was to come. Jesus, who was full of grace and truth, the law was designed to point us toward. And yet, even within the law, God made it a point to tell Israel, you need you some celebration. You, you, you must schedule celebrations into your calendar, into your agenda. Look at what he says in Leviticus. Leviticus, nobody goes to Leviticus unless somebody tells them to. Leviticus 23, the Lord said to Moses, give the following instructions to the people of Israel. These are the Lord's appointed festivals, which you are to proclaim as official days for holy assembly. God says, Mo, tell the people to party. Tell the people to set aside some time to honor and to worship me through feasting, through having some festivals. It's interesting. God then goes on in Leviticus 23 to list the festivals they're supposed to have. You know where he begins? With the festival of Sabbath. Sabbath, God says, is a once-a-week festival that you and I are to set aside. It is to be set apart as different from the rest of the week. Remember, God gave us that example in creation. He worked, he created, and made everything out of nothing. Ex nihilo, according to the theologians. For six days, but on the seventh day, God rested. Now think about that for a second. Why did God rest? Why what, Did God get to the end of day six and go, whew, whew, 
and I'm winded. Hold on. Whoo, those people, day six, took it out of me. Whew. I'll be with you in just a second. No. God rested as an example for us to follow. He rested because he knew that he had hardwired within us a need every seven days to rest from our work, to recreate, to regenerate, to refresh and replenish not just our bodies but our souls. God knew that we needed that. And so as an expression of his love, he commands Sabbath to set that apart for rest, for recreation, for gathering and assembling together. Now, I know on this Sunday morning right here in the room, I'm preaching to the choir. Y'all are here. <laughs> but you and I know that our culture does not celebrate Sabbath. Matter of fact, our culture kind of mocks Sabbath. Like, you don't need to go to church. That's, I mean, pfft. It's about brunch, bro. It's about chilling. It's about, you know, just hanging out. God says, no, Sabbath is a festival. That, that it is to be set apart. This is what he is all about. And it's really connected to this season. As you and I begin the holidays, the, the holidays are a critical critical time. It's a huge opportunity. Rather than to see it as something stressful, we can see it as a monster opportunity. The word itself, holidays, gives us an indication of how this happens. The word holidays means holy days set apart for shared worship and celebration. Holy days, holidays, holy days set apart for shared worship and celebration. So between now and the new year, we begin to shift our perspective. And because we've shifted our perspective, we shift our behavior. And we start to say, you know what? Every single decision I make, everything I do and everything I don't do is an opportunity for worship. To step back and say, God, help me to use this time for your purposes, for for worship, for your glory and my good. And, and how we do that, the, the clues and the cues, I think are wrapped up in that example from Leviticus 23 and then the word holidays, or as we're going to refer to it, the holy days. When, when you start to understand what holy really and truly means, you understand that it's the opportunity to dedicate the holy days to dedicate the holidays to God. So, right now, everybody has the opportunity, if you choose, to just kind of take a deep breath. Just, just everybody, just kind of. I will decide to dedicate the next 60 days as worship to the God who created me. I will dedicate, I will set this apart so that everything I do, every meal I prepare or don't prepare, every invitation I accept or reject is rooted in my dedication of these holy days to the one who gave them to me. 
Do you see the freedom and the liberty that comes when you dedicate something to God? You start to understand who he is and what he desires. It's like, I don't have to go to every holidays party because every party ain't a part of the holy days. You feel me on that? I'm just saying. But you dedicate this season, these holy days, to worship. God, just, just help me to make good decisions that reflect your character and who you've created me to be. And watch the stress disintegrate and melt away. You dedicate the holy days. Number two, celebrate the holy days. Celebrate them. I mean, there's nothing wrong. As a matter of fact, it is commanded biblically that we celebrate the faithfulness and the goodness of God. Thanksgiving is a great opportunity for this. Thanksgiving is an act of holiness. The word holy is a great word. It's, it's a big church word. Most of us know, we've heard the word, you know, oh, holier than thou. But you know what holy actually means? Holy just means set apart. Holy means set apart and different than. So when we give thanks at Thanksgiving, we're recognizing God is our provider. Everything I have, everything you have is a gift from God. If you're here this morning, I want to ask you to raise your hand. Raise your hand if you were wearing clothes today. Just, just raise your hand up high. Okay, awesome. It's almost unanimous. That's great. Somebody's like, really? No. The clothes you're wearing, the clothes on my back, God's given them to me. It's a, it's a provision from God. Now, some of us, we're, we're representing God's sense of humor with what we're wearing, but it's a gift. It's, it's a gift from God. So we give thanks for that which he has given to us. And therefore, we set apart these days, these feasts. And remember, feasting is in the eye of the beholder. For some, a feast may represent a massive turkey and ham and duck and venison and buffalo and ostrich meal. I don't, I don't know what your feast looks like. But you may decide, you know what, I'm going to feast. I'm going to celebrate and give thanks to God with a cheeseburger. And, and because it's Thanksgiving, I'm putting bacon on it, man. I'm doing it. I don't care. I don't care, man. It's a feast. But you celebrate the holy days, and, and that can be an act of worship in and of itself. But if we just leave it there, we've missed a massive opportunity. I, I believe that part of dedicating the holy days and part of celebrating the holy days is a choice that we each make to imitate the set-apartness of God. To live our lives the way he's created us to live. To follow the example of Jesus. The example of Jesus, I believe, is probably the second greatest gift that he ever gave us. When you wonder about how you should respond or how you should treat someone or how you should conduct business, what would Jesus do? That was actually a great idea long before anybody made a bracelet out of it. What's the example of Jesus? Jesus who is the one that we have beheld, full of the glory of the Father, 
the one and only, full of grace and truth, full of celebration and dedication. Jesus gives us that example, and so it's an example that we should imitate. And Jesus' earthly ministry, as I said, was the fulfillment of the law that God gave Moses that we reference in Leviticus 23 and elsewhere, but Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of that law, the perfect expression of God's grace and God's truth. Jesus never compromised either God's grace or God's truth. It's a remarkable, beautiful balance that he accomplishes. And he used a lot of different ways to communicate what that looked like, how we were to experience that balance, how we were to live in that that grace and that truth. And my favorite, which is worth what you paid for, but I mean, my, my favorite example, my favorite sermon that Jesus ever preached is found in Luke chapter 15. In Luke 15, Jesus delivers a three-point sermon. Now, we don't know or have any evidence that Jesus went to seminary except for the fact that he gave a three-point sermon in Luke chapter 15. And he was trying to educate and communicate what it looked like to live in relationship with God and how that happens. And he said it was, it was like, first of all, a lost coin, that there was that there was a woman who had lost a coin and, and she turned her house upside down until she found the coin. And then when she found the coin, she threw a huge party for her friends and her neighbors. She's like, I found it. Or it might have been like a, like a lost sheep. And, and the shepherd had lost the sheep, but he, he left the ones that he knew where they were to go find that sheep. And Jesus said when he found that sheep, he celebrated and threw a huge party because the one that was lost was now found. But it's the third part of this sermon it's my favorite because it's in the third part that Jesus told the story, the illustration of the prodigal son. The son who was a younger son, he had an older brother, but went to his father and demanded his inheritance ahead of schedule. He said, Dad, I'm tired of living under your rules and under your roof. I want what's coming to me and I want it now. And the father who loved his son perfectly didn't want to keep his son there against his will and so he acceded to his wishes and he gave him his inheritance ahead of schedule and the son took the money and ran and he ran to a far country Jesus said and he said in that far country he squandered everything that his father had given him he just he just threw it all away because he didn't appreciate it and he he got to a place where he was so broke Jesus said that he was just trying to earn a living by feeding pigs he was slopping hogs in order to live and survive and while he was feeding the pigs Jesus said something very interesting he said he was feeding the pigs slopping the hogs and he came to his senses he came to his senses and while he was slopping hogs he remembered home he goes man he goes my dad's servants his dad was obviously a man of means and wealth. And he said, my, my dad's servants have it better than I do. I mean, he, he was so hungry, he wanted to eat the hog slop. And so he devised a plan. He said, I'm going to leave the pigsty, and I'm going home. 
And I'm just going to throw myself on my dad's mercy. I'm going to say, Dad, I don't deserve to be your son. But if you'll just hire me on as a hired hand, I just want to come home. And Jesus inserts a twist in the plot at this point that shocked his audience. Because you see, in the story Jesus told, this father, this man of means, this pillar of the community, would have been restrained by convention. Convention held that he was to be dignified at all times. That as he walked around his home or his town, he did just that. He was to walk. Because in that culture, for a man to lift his garment up off the ground where it normally trailed and to show any part of his leg would have been incredibly dishonoring and undignified. And this son, as he's making his way home, Jesus tells this story and he says, the son is rehearsing his story all the way home and he's, he's rehearsing the pitch. Dad, forgive me. I messed up. I was wrong. I just want to be a hired hand. Dad, forgive me. I messed up. I just want to come home. I just want to be a hired hand. And in Jesus' story, he never gets to make the pitch. He never gets to make the speech. Because his dad comes running. He never gets to the front gate because his dad lifts his garment and runs to greet this son that he thought was dead. And he runs and he welcomes him home with open arms. And you can just picture the, the, the son, Dad, I'm sorry. Shh, shh, shh. Uh-uh. You're home. My boy's home. I thought he was dead. And he's alive. But then look at how Jesus wraps this story up. Look at what he says. His father said to the servants, Quick, bring the finest robe in the house and put it on him. Get a ring for his finger and sandals for his feet and kill the calf we have been fattening. We must celebrate with a feast. For this son of mine was dead and is now returned to life. He was lost, but now he is found. I love this. So the party began. This is my God. This is what he offers. Not just during the holy days, but every day. To live the feasting life of Jesus Christ. I have come that they might have life and have it to the full. Overflowing, pressed down, and spilling over. Now, Who's ready for some holy days? Who's ready to make this a reality every day? Tis the season. Will you bow your heads with me for just a moment? Because in this moment, I believe that there are people here who have never stepped into that reality, into the promise 
of a feast. Not just of a meal, not just something that satisfies physically, but that which satisfies spiritually and personally in every way. If you're here today and you've never stepped into that, we want to give you the opportunity to do exactly that. You see, the gospel, the good news of Jesus is an invitation to celebration, to live out the truth and the grace of God. Not just one day in the sweet by and by, but right now in the sweet here and now. If you want to step into that and live that out for the first time in your life, then we want to invite you just to pray right where you're sitting. A prayer of beginning, of coming to the table. You just pray just with your heads bowed and all of our eyes are closed. Just pray silently if that's you. Just pray and just say, Jesus, I'm coming to the table, the feast that you have prepared. I give you my life, all of it, holding nothing back. I confess my sin, all of it. And this morning, I claim your forgiveness, all of it. To begin following you with everything I have. Jesus, I give you my life from this moment forward. I want to ask you just to remain with your heads bowed for a moment. And it's a sacred moment because God's moving in people's lives. And if that was your prayer and you just meant it, to the best of your ability, we want you to know that this is the most important moment of your life. And as a church, we celebrate that with you. We wanna, we wanna be a safe place and a family of faith for you to live that faith out, to experience the fullness of that feast. And so for those of you who just prayed that prayer and stepped into that grace relationship, I want to ask you, if you will, just make a moment to make a personal connection into the family of faith. Just the program that you got when you came in today, as you open that up, you'll notice in there a card that says it's our connect card. And if you'll just fill that out and your information and then indicate that I'm committing my life to Christ today. And before you leave today, just briefly, just stop somebody who's wearing an LHC shirt, maybe an usher, or at the canopy out underneath the main exit, and just make a brief personal connection with that card. And know that as a church, we celebrate that with you. And so, as our heads are bowed for just a moment more, if, if that was your prayer and you just stepped into that relationship, I want to ask you if you would just quietly but unmistakably raise your hand. Just raise your hand for a couple of reasons. Number one, 
for you to stamp this moment indelibly in your mind and in your heart and to know that it's real, that God did this. And as just a statement of faith, And so, just so you understand our heart and our priority as a church, we celebrate that with you. And part of our family tradition around here, as you put your hands down, we like to put our hands together and we tell you, welcome home. Welcome to the feast. Welcome home.